Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. Finding income for your clients is tough. FS Investments makes it easier by designing solutions that help investors reach their income goals and secure their futures. FS Investments never settles, so advisors and investors won't have to either. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities and discover what it means to never settle. This is not an offer to buy securities. Investors are advised to consider investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. Welcome to the Dead Celebrities Podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenick. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the latest episode of the Dead Celebrity Podcast, presented by WealthManagement.com. My name is David Lenick, and I'm a senior editor with Wealth Management and Trust in Estates. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a single celebrity estate, be it a planning snafu, a familial fight, or even just a good example of the power of proper planning. And from that high-profile and often ridiculous example, Myself and a guest attempt to boil the example down to some lessons that advisors can use with their more typical clients. The idea being that celebrity estates, though the details are often more bombastic, generally face the same obstacles and issues as those of regular people, just with the volume turned up, making them interesting and valuable case studies. My guest today is Bruce Hoffmeister. Bruce is a vice president and wealth strategist at Wilmington Trust. He's responsible for developing and implementing comprehensive financial, estate planning, and wealth transfer plans for high net worth families and entrepreneurs as part of the National Business Owners Advisory Services Group. Bruce works closely with clients and their advisors to define each client's specific goals and objectives before developing an appropriate plan. Thanks for joining us, Bruce. Uh, Thank you for having me. So the topic of today's episode is the legendary entertainer Liberace. At the height of his fame from the 1950s to the 1970s, Liberace was the highest paid entertainer in the world, with established concert residencies in Las Vegas and an international touring schedule. He has not one, but two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Liberace embraced a lifestyle of flamboyant excess, both on and off stage, living up to his nickname as Mr. Showmanship. Though rumors of homosexuality hounded him throughout his career, He never came out during his life publicly, and he brought and won several libel lawsuits against various publications. He also supposedly appeared in public with a number of beards, sort of fake girlfriends, if you will, to refute any allegations. Uh, In a 2011 interview, comedy legend Betty White herself claims that she acted as a beard for Liberace on numerous occasions. Um, He also kept secret the HIV diagnosis that would eventually lead to his death from pneumonia in 1987. Uh, the fact that he had AIDS was actually only discovered during a rogue autopsy by the Riverside County Coroner, which was against the family's and the doctor's orders. In a bit of a change of pace, the conflict we'll be looking at this episode took place during Liberace's life and didn't really directly involve his estate. I'm speaking, of course, about the infamous Palamone case brought against Liberace by former chauffeur and living lover Scott Thorson, a relationship made famous by the book and recent film Beyond the Candelabra. 
Thurston met Liberace in 1977 as a 17-year-old who was still part of the foster care system. Despite the 40-year age difference between them, the two allegedly became lovers, and Thorson was even incorporated into Liberace's act as a rhinestone-clad chauffeur. Thorson moved into Liberace's extravagant mansion and traveled the world with him. Sadly, their relationship abruptly ended in 1982, when Thorson was forcibly ejected from their shared home by Liberace's entourage amid dueling allegations of infidelity on the part of Liberace and Thorson's supposed drug addiction, among other things. Thorson eventually sued for $113 million in palimony. And just a quick note about palimony. That's, that's not an actual legal term. Um, it's just a colloquial combination of alimony and pal, uh, coined by an attorney during a case actually involving Hollywood star Lee Marvin and a former living lover of his who took his surname. It's basically shorthand for dividing financial assets and real property on the termination of a, a personal living relationship where the parties aren't legally married. Um, you can check out Marvin v. Marvin if you want to know more or if you just like celebrity dirt. Thorson claimed in his 1982 lawsuit that Liberace had pledged that when Thorson lived in, moved in as his full-time secretary, chauffeur, animal trainer, and lover, that he would be paid $70,000 a year for life, up to $30,000 a year for pet care, and would be entitled to the use of one of the pianist's luxury homes in Palm Springs or Beverly Hills for the rest of his life. Thorsten claimed he'd foregone his own career and had, at Liberace's request, even undergone facial surgery to more closely conform his facial features to those of Liberace. He expected to spend the rest of his life with the entertainer and be buried beside him in the Liberace family plot. Thorsten fought and largely lost a highly public battle both in court and in the court of public opinion. Uh, he ultimately privately settled in 1986 for $75,000 in cash two dogs, a 1960s Rolls-Royce, and two other automobiles, according to sources at the time. So I've chosen this story to provide an example of just how little financial protection used to exist for LGBTQ couples under the law. Thorson literally went directly from foster care to the lap of luxury to finding himself suddenly homeless and unemployed with basically no recourse available. Luckily, we currently live in a post-Windsor world where LGBTQ couples are afforded access to marriage and the highly valuable bundle of rights that come with it. So, Bruce, that's it, right? Everybody's totally equal now, end of story? No, that's not exactly true. Uh, you still have the issues of a dissolution of a relationship and how assets are going to be uh, dissolved and how um, a court would look at the contributions of the parties to the marriage and dividing up the assets. So it's, it's, it's appropriate for members of the LGBT community to have prenups just like it is for opposite-sex couples. You still have issues to resolve in a dissolution of a relationship that won't necessarily mean that there's an equal division of assets when a relationship is dissolved. And so it's very important for the parties when getting married to sit down together and work out exactly what the responsibilities of the parties are going to be in the marriage and if there's a breakup of the marriage. And uh, we can just expand on what exactly you mean by prenup. I think, uh, for the vast majority of sort of laymen, uh, you know, prenup is kind of a dirty word. So, so what are the sort of the advantages of, of incorporating it here? 
Well, everyone looks at a prenuptial agreement, or a lot of people look at prenuptial agreements and say it's something that's being forced on the parties in order to look at a worst-case scenario. But it actually is something that should be done in the good times before a relationship, uh, as a relationship is being entered into, so that the parties have a good understanding of what their responsibilities are going to be in the marriage. How are they going to manage their finances? Who's going to contribute to what? Uh, if you have a relationship where you have one party who's earning a, the majority of the income of the marriage, then what uh, – what provisions would be made for uh, the payment of bills when you have the non-earner essentially helping build a home or helping build the business but not receiving any compensation for it and not being able to save any money for themselves. They're totally dependent upon the other party. So it's important that when you put together when when a relationship is formed, that they have a good understanding of that. And a prenup is not a dirty word in the sense that it's always looking for what's going to go wrong in a relationship. It's also a guide or a roadmap to what can go right in a relationship because it facilitates the open conversation uh, and open communication about exactly how the parties are going to behave financially in a relationship. And so, you know, we're talking about a prenuptial agreement, but that assumes that there's nuptials <laughs> in the first place. We're assuming here that, that this couple is taking advantage of, of, the, of the ability to marry. Um, what about a case where you know, a couple, an LGBTQ couple has, for some reason, not either has been unable to marry because, you know, either it was refused to them or, you know, they've just lived a certain way for, you know, 35 years and then they don't want to change it. Well, it still is important to have a partnership agreement, uh, to have something in place to, if you have a relationship that's gone on for 35 years, it would be important there to understand what the parties are going to do for each other in death, you know, assuming that the relationship is going to last for the rest of their lives. And so just having a relationship that goes on for 35 years does not mean that either party has any rights to the assets of the the other party upon death. So it's very important there that they have some sort of arrangement between the parties, even if it is just to have their wills in place uh, or their estate plan in place so that it clearly lays out who gets what upon death. And then in a relationship, you can still have a partnership agreement, even if you're not married, that defines how you allocate your assets in case there's a dissolution of the partnership. Yeah, because I think it's important to stress here that, you know, these themes of financial and thereby sort of power imbalance in a relationship, that that's not just a, a heterosexual problem, right? As as the Liberace example, I think, plainly illustrates, right? There, there, there's plenty of all types of relationships have to face this sort of issue of, of either what one partner comes in with way more or one partner has willingly sort of subsumed their earning power in order to assist the the, the whole. Um, and then these sorts of... You know, Agreements, be they prenuptial agreement or partnership agreements, are, are key to sort of protecting the party with, with sort of less power. 
Yeah, it is. It's very important. And it's also, you need to look at what your debt situation is when you come into a relationship and what the spending habits are of, the, of both parties so that you understand and can communicate freely about how you're going to deal with the debt and what happens in the event that the debt is paid off by the partner who has more money. And student loans is a good example. And then when the party who had the debt, say they're a doctor, goes out and suddenly becomes a uh, higher, higher producing spouse in income, what contributions do you consider has been made by the party that helped pay off the debt? And then subsequently is the partner with the lesser uh, income earning capability. I'm glad you brought up this, uh, the idea of spending. Um, I've seen some studies, you know, and obviously when we're trying to generalize an entire group here, not everything is going to apply to everyone. So please take all of this with a grain of salt. Um, but I've seen some studies that indicate that, you know, that, that LGBTQ couples have sort of different spending patterns to, to heterosexual couples. Um, do you mind expanding on sort of that idea and why that might be, or even if that's true? Well, whether it's true or not, I've seen the studies too, that they think that, um, uh, LGBT couples, uh, because they don't have children, have more uh, spending power and more available cash to spend. Therefore, they spend more uh, aggressively, I guess, than a couple who has children. But I, I'm not certain that that's the case looking around at my friends and couples that I know as to whether or not um, they're behaving any differently than what a heterosexual couple behaves. Um, but if they do have spending issues, then it really gets into a, a situation of understanding what the uh, parties, are, what their spending habits are and how you're going to deal with that. And that goes back to why you need some sort of agreement that lays that out so that both parties go into a relationship with their eyes wide open and know what to expect so that, you know, we're talking about things here that are financial issues and dissolution of a relationship and everything, but having the financial issues off the table makes a relationship stronger uh, if everybody knows what's going to be happening in the relationship before they get into the relationship. So Bruce, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the, you know, the concept of children because I think that that's uh, something that's very near and dear to, I mean, all couples and LGBTQ couples included, but obviously they face certain issues um, with planning for children that may be uh, you know, fewer, I guess, uh, heterosexual couples will face, you know, things like adoption and, you know, the use of a surrogate or, or, or howsoever. Um, did you expand on some of these issues? Well, you know, one of the issues that comes into play in the LGBTQ uh, community is whether or not, obviously, it takes a third party, whether that is a unwed mother, not an unwed mother, but a mother who's willing to give a child up for adoption, or whether you're using a surrogate and have one uh, party be the biological parent. A lot of LGBTQ couples don't follow through with the adoption by the second parent, and that's the important thing that really can cause problems because you end up in a situation to where one parent may not have a responsibility to uh, take care of the child if there is a dissolution. Although now that marriage is there is available to LGBTQ couples is that they don't follow through 
with a adoption policy. And so then you have a child who doesn't have rights from one parent uh, in the event of death, uh, potentially, and potentially in the event of a dissolution. So that um, a child who's not adopted by a part, uh, one of the partners or parties and the party dies and doesn't provide for the child, the child has no right to even contest the will or to claim to be a a beneficiary if the client, if the spouse dies without a will. This is actually a a much more common fact pattern than one would think. Actually, I think there's been several Law & Order episodes about this very thing where, um, you know, a, a partner has not illegally adopted a child, and then all of a sudden, you know, the grandparents of of the, the parent who gave them up come back into the picture in these sorts of uh, hyper dramatized situations. But um, in the real world, this this is very happens very often, and you know, you can see both the child loses their rights, and I mean, you have a, a potentially loving parent who may have the you know not have the ability to take care of this child anymore because they have not legally adopted them. Yeah, that's exactly the case. We're seeing less of it, I believe, because now that marriage is legal, that parties are getting married and taking the steps uh, to live together cohesively as a family unit. But there's still the issue out there uh, that the parties, whether for some circumstances, maybe as a matter of cost, uh, can be expensive to go through the adoption process, or just a matter of not attending to the details that they need to attend to. It's like clients that are in relationships and they never go out and do a will or they have a will that was before they entered into the relationship and never changed the will to take on uh, responsibility for a partner uh, that they don't marry. So that's uh, another reason why you should have a partnership agreement in every relationship that you go into so that it's clearly laid out as to what the responsibilities of the partners are to each other. And on this show, obviously, as an estate planning attorney, I'm a great proponent of wills. But I think having a properly put together estate plan and will is especially important for an LGBTQ couple, um, at least in my experience, working with the community. Um, a lot of LGBTQ people, you know, they end up choosing their own family for for better or worse. You know, perhaps they they have distance from from their not from their their biological family who maybe were unacceptive or for whatever reason. I've seen that you know it's a lot more uh, things going to friends and and to their new sort of chosen family and maybe less to uh, you know their their more traditional family. Um, but you know the the law intestacy law doesn't really respect that relationship, right? In a lot of ways, it can work against um, what you know, a couple might actually want, you know, the, the disposition of their assets that they might want to follow. Um, so you just talk about the importance of a will and really getting these things straightened out. Yeah, I mean, I've seen cases where it's a couple lived together for years, never put a will in place. One partner uh, discovers that they're dying, has documents drafted to take care of the partner, but then dies before the 
uh, will is even executed, and the family has come in of the deceased partner and basically totally wiped out the partner that it was clear that the deceased partner intended to provide for, um, but the relationship between the family, the biological family, and the partner was not good. And they still came in and basically said, we're going to ignore that relationship. It never really happened in our view, and we get everything. And that's exactly what the court ended up holding. Um, the parties could have gotten married. They didn't. And the party could have done the will and didn't. And so that was a very sad case uh, that I was peripherally involved in. And there wasn't much that could be done. So it is very important for parties who are not married, who are in relationships, to have wills, that even if they don't have a partnership agreement, that they have a will that provides for the partner, and it, and they put that in place from day one, essentially, and uh, you can always change a will, uh, but it's still, they make the effort to have the partner provided for. And, and you can't forget, a will is one thing, but you also can't forget your other assets, your retirement plan accounts, uh, individual retirement accounts, your work retirement plan account, your life insurance policies, accounts that you may have payable on death to a particular party. If you forget to take those into account in a relationship and have, let's say, previous partners listed as beneficiaries or have family members uh, listed as beneficiaries instead of the new partner, the partner, uh, the surviving partner really has no recourse to go after those assets if they're not married and um, they're they're left out. And even if there's a partnership agreement, if they haven't provided for those assets to be uh, distributed to the partner and the partnership agreement, there's no way for the partner to have any recourse against the estate of the deceased partner. Well, Bruce, we're running out of time. But uh, I'll thank you for coming on. And I think just going to try to take an extremely complex um, subject and ask you to do the impossible and kind of wrap it up for advisors and into a neat little bow here. Um, if you're an advisor and you have an LGBTQ couple walk into your office and you're not experienced working with the community, what's the first thing that you're looking at? The First thing I think that I look at is whether what the couple tells me their arrangement is and then whether or not they have something that memorializes that arrangement. And to have an understanding or to find out whether or not the couple has an understanding that is the same for each party as to what they intend to do for each other. And from there, you work through getting the clients to come up with their goals and objectives and then make sure that they have the appropriate documentation that puts in place a plan that'll provide for them in accordance with their goals and objectives. Well, that's all the time we have. I'd like to thank our guest, Bruce Hoffmeister. I think he was great. Thank you, Bruce. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, for all our listeners, um, I'll see you next time, or I guess you'll hear me next time. Thank you for listening to the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. 
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. Finding income for your clients is tough. FS Investments makes it easier by designing solutions that help investors reach their income goals and secure their futures. FS Investments never settles, so advisors and investors won't have to either. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities and discover what it means to never settle. This is not an offer to buy securities. Investors are advised to consider investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. 